Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 157, Life on the Russian Country Estate, Part 2. Well, last time, we covered how life was on a Russian country estate for the nobles in the 18th and 19th century. Today, we'll wrap things up, primarily describing how life was for the serfs who served the nobles. As we shall see today, there were good estate holders and bad ones. Either way, life as a serf on a Russian country estate was not an easy one, nor very pleasant. Even the best of the nobility, those who treated their serfs well, would have had their people turn on them in a heartbeat if given the chance. This was evidenced by the numerous rebellions that I mentioned in my series on the Great Revolts. Sometimes the serfs would protect a benevolent master, but many times they would turn on the whole family. Some nobles felt that this was an excuse to abuse their serfs and to keep them fearful of retribution. Sometimes this worked, and sometimes it didn't. Some nobles felt that it was important to educate their charges, and some felt it better to keep them ignorant. Many noblemen, as I mentioned last episode, felt that they had a strong obligation to take care of their serfs, oftentimes viewing them as simple children who wouldn't be able to survive without their guidance. This mindset was one of the reasons why abandoning serfdom was so difficult for the Russian nobility. They just couldn't fathom how these poor folks could make it in the real world. In her book on life on the country estate, Priscilla Roosevelt tells us about a P.I. Koshkarov, a wealthy man who had a firm grip over his charges, but was considered rather benevolent. His peasants were far better off than most, but he still treated them as though they were only property. He had his way with the young girls who dared not deny him. The unmarried women were strictly separated from the men, and any breach of this rule would sometimes be met with brutal punishment. One girl, a certain Afimia, ran away with a young boy named Fyodor. Koshkarov ordered a manhunt, and when captured he had both whipped and her chained to a large wooden block for a month. Afterwards, she was demoted from a house serf to a sweeper outdoors. Koshkarov was certainly not unique in how he treated the women on his estate. Roosevelt tells us of a bachelor, one Peter Espipov, who would have parties that a visitor recalls. The Saturnasia, Bachnal, continued long after midnight. Or how V.A. Shompolev described orgies in the great hall of Lev Roslovev's manor house in the Sadorov province. These were examples of benevolent noblemen. The stories of the bad ones, they were really grotesque. And it wasn't just men who could be cruel. One, Daria Saltikova, was legendary in her brutality towards her souls. She had 139 serfs, mostly young girls, and they were put to death. That's not how many serfs she had, that's how many she killed, for trivial mistakes like not cleaning the floors completely. She would even personally flog some for entertainment. There were stories about her, including luring serfs to her home, slitting their throats, and eating their hearts. Of course, this is likely to be a tall tale, but she was still put on trial and sentenced to death for her deeds. Luckily for her, Catherine the Great commuted the sentence to a life in a Moscow nunnery under strict confinement. To show how meaningless the life of a serf was, one woman who killed her serf by flogging only got three months in jail for her crime. No wonder the serfs hated their masters. 
They felt it like they were little more than things and not treated as humans, much as the African-American slaves were in the South. Some serfs on the estates were exploited, such as the one Roosevelt describes, quote, Anna Melyadova, wife of the governor of Tambov and Vladimir provinces, in the 1820s forced her seamstresses to embroider items for sale hours on end. She kept them alert by putting Spanish fly, a blistering agent, on their shoulders and prevented them from running away by tying them to their chairs by their hair. Another issue on the country's states and Russian society in general was what the, that the man was the ruler and women to be, were to be always subservient, even in marriage. The father and the husband were always to be obeyed, with women having little say, even if things got out of hand. They could be abused, beaten, locked up, and there was nothing the authorities could do. Even worse, it was illegal to leave even the worst of men. A law still on the books in 1836 stated, quote, A woman must obey her husband, reside with him in love, respect, and unlimited obedience, and offer him every pleasantness and affection as the rule of the household. In this environment, one can no doubt expect to hear of serfs going off on their masters, despite the certain punishment of torture and death. You would be right to think that. It also happened quite often. And it was very often targeted at the male head of the, uh, the family. But the big fear that nobles of the country estate had was massed and organized revolt. This sometimes would happen on an isolated estate with many of the serfs joining in, or in the cases of the big revolts, like the Pugachev Rebellion, there would be tens of thousands of serfs across hundreds of estates. This was of great concern not only on the estates, but in St. Petersburg and Moscow. The Pugachev event was earth-shattering to the elite. The tales of murder, torture, and dismemberment of noblemen and their families were numerous. You would think that after that, the elite would be a little smarter and treat their serfs better, but in actuality, the opposite happened in many instances. Another cataclysmic event to the country estates which showed the poor relationship between the serf and the nobles was the invasion of Napoleon in 1812. When called to arms, the nobleman would have to turn over 10% of his able male serfs to the army. Service in the army was so bad, so horrible, that men would maim themselves to get out of service. With the French approaching quickly, the government put pressure on the estates to give them the men to fight for Russia. Many were reluctant, but some believed it was important to fight for the motherland. Case in point, the Yankov family gave up over a 100 men to the cause, and when they asked for volunteers, 32 more stepped forward. Conversely, the Bibikova family was almost torn to shreds by the peasants at one station where they tried to switch horses as they fled from the oncoming invaders. As Napoleon approached Moscow, many began to flee, but not having enough time to gather all their belongings, many of the noble class lost much of their wealth to the fire set to provide no shelter to the French and their allies. When the French began to retreat, the noble state put out in the, uh, the east. So they stayed there for a while, and with their masters gone, the peasants who had been left to their own devices decided that wasn't, what wasn't nailed down was fair game. Not all the damage was done by the peasants. The French partook of some of the fineries, but since many of them died in the retreat, the spoils of war that they took 
became just so much loot on the side of the road for people to take for themselves. While many estates in and around Moscow were devastated, many west of the capital, along the route Napoleon took in, were ravished. Rebuilding, though, began within a year. It was one profound change amongst the nobility, and that was the influence of the French language at court. Many of the nobles actually spoke very poor Russian, as they had French nannies and tutors. One incident Roosevelt relays in her book is when Nicholas Muriev, a Russian officer, and a man later involved in 1825 in the Decemberist revolt, was detained by a group of peasants in 1812, suspicious that he was a spy because his Russian was so poor. Because of the war, though, French lost its glitter as the language of the wealthy, replaced by a greater sense of pride in Russian. As we talked about a few years ago in the Nicholas I and Alexander II podcast series, one of the aftermaths of the war was the realization that Russia and the Russian practice of serfdom needed to come to an end. Many noblemen as officers had seen the rest of Europe when they marched toward Paris and the defeat of Napoleon. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the land and how the serfs worked it. On a typical Russian country estate, the serf would work the land of the owner for no more than three days a week, working his land the rest. And to be honest, he needed the extra day as he usually got the crappiest land, while the owner got the best. And the land was divided, very interestingly, into very narrow strips of land, so there would be fewer turns of the plow. Lots of time, though, the peasants had to be persuaded and or forced to work the nobles' land, as they didn't really get much out of that work. Stewards and town elders had to work all the time to, get the, to just get anything done. Sometimes it was almost impossible, and lots of fields would go unharvested. Then there would be the years when drought would hit, which would be followed by famine, and that occurred quite often in Russian history. At those times, it was the responsibility of the landowner to feed his souls. There was another way that the typical serf could pay his way, and that was in an annual monetary payment known as obrok. Working the land for three days was known as the barshashina. Now, the typical serf who would pay the obrok was usually better off than his landed friend. The serf who made payments were oftentimes skilled workers like blacksmiths, painters, carpenters, or architects. Some, if very talented, could become quite wealthy, having enough money to buy their freedom. One serf was so valuable to his owner that it cost him an amazing 300,000 rubles to gain his freedom. As Roosevelt tells us in her book on the Russian country estate, a few of the serfs owned by Nikolai Sheremetev became millionaires owned property, and their own serfs, but they had to be registered in Nikolai's name. Many an Obrook serf would work off the state, given passports to allow for freedom of movement. But this did not free him from the whims and punishments if he displeased his master. Still, the valuable craftsmen could bring in lots of cash for the estate, so they were, for the most part, treated very well. A major problem for the estates, though, were runaway serfs. Thousands upon thousands would escape every year throughout Russia. There were men who specialized in tracking them down, and they were pretty brutal in their methods of returning them. Revolts, as I mentioned earlier, was also another issue. 
An example, in 1762 alone, over 314 revolts were recorded, with many more taken care of privately without government intervention. But not all serfs wanted their freedom. There were a large number, not a majority, mind you, but a goodly amount who were treated like family and were actually saddened when emancipation occurred in 1861. The emancipation of February 19, 1861, changed everything in regards to the Russian country estate. One of the biggest problems were estates that had financial problems. They had to give, give each one of their landed serfs a piece of land, which in many cases ruined them. The emancipation was quite devastating to the noble class. Some even resorted to denying the proclamation or just ignoring it. The holding of a country estate with the accompanying serfs were by law only allowed if you had a hereditary noble standing. After emancipation, anyone with enough money could buy one. Throughout Russia, old noble families were forced to sell to the nouveau riche. Over the coming years, up until about 1905, many estate ownerships were transferred. Life was changing. By that time, the turmoil in Russia dissuaded much further estate purchases. When the Russian Revolution occurred in 1917, the estates were no more. As you can imagine, they were for the most part not destroyed, but taken over by the leadership within the Communist Party, the new nobility. With it, we have a new class of peasants serving their red masters. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, join me next time when I guarantee we will cover the life of one of the greatest literary people of all time, Leo Tolstoy, as I finally got all my material on him. Well, instead of our regular ending, I just want to ask everybody who hasn't to go over to iTunes and rate the podcast. It's just a few minutes of your time, but by doing so, you can help bring Russian history to a whole new group of people by boosting our popularity. So as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.